0: part three of the history of the thirty years war volume one by friedrich von schiller translated by rev a j w morrison this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by alan winteroud bohemia was not a more peaceable possession for austria than hungary with this difference only that in the latter political considerations in the former religious dissensions fomented disorders in bohemia a century before the days of luther the first spark of the religious war had been kindled a century after luther the first flames of the thirty years war burst out in bohemia the sect which owed its rise to john huss still existed in that country it agreed with the romish church in ceremonies and doctrines with the single exception of the administration of the communion in which the hussites communicated in both kinds This privilege had been conceded to the followers of Huss by the Council of Basel, in an express treaty, the Bohemian Compact, and though it was afterwards disavowed by the popes, they nevertheless continued to profit by it under the sanction of the government. As the use of the cup formed the only important distinction of their body, they were usually designated by the name of ultraquists, and they readily adopted an appellation which reminded them of their dearly valued privilege but under this title lurked also the far stricter sects of the Bohemian and Moravian Brethren, who differed from their predominant Church in more important particulars, and bore, in fact, a great resemblance to the German Protestants. Among them both, the German and Swiss opinions on religion made rapid progress, while the name of Ultraquists, under which they managed to disguise the change of their principles, shielded them from persecution. In truth, they had nothing in common with the ultraquists but the name, essentially they were altogether Protestant. Confident in the strength of their party, and the emperor's toleration under Maximilian, they had openly avowed their tenets. After the example of the Germans, they drew up a confession of their own, in which Lutherans as well as Calvinists recognized their own doctrines, and they sought to transfer to the new confession the privileges of the original ultraquists. In this they were opposed by the Roman Catholic countrymen, and forced to rest content with the emperor's verbal assurance of protection. As long as Maximilian lived, they enjoyed complete toleration, even under the new form they had taken. Under his successor, the scene changed. An imperial edict appeared, which deprived the Bohemian brethren of their religious freedom. Now these differed in nothing from the other ultraquists. The sentence, therefore, Of their condemnation, obviously included all the partisans of the Bohemian Confession. Accordingly, they all combined to oppose the imperial mandate in the Diet, but without being able to procure its revocation. The Emperor and the Roman Catholic estates took their ground on the compact and the Bohemian Constitution, in which nothing appeared in favor of a religion which had not then obtained the voice of the country since that time how completely had affairs changed. What had formed but an inconsiderable opinion had now become the predominant religion of the country, and what was it then but a subterfuge to limit a newly spreading religion by the terms of obsolete treaties. The Bohemian Protestants appealed to the verbal guarantee of Maximilian and the religious freedom of the Germans, with whom they argued they ought to be on a footing of equality. It was in vain, their appeal was dismissed. Such was the posture of affairs in Bohemia, when Matthias, already master in Hungary, Austria, and Moravia, appeared in Koln to raise the Bohemian estates also against the emperor. The embarrassment of the latter was now at its height. Abandoned by all his other subjects, he placed his last hopes on the Bohemians, whom, it might be foreseen, would take advantage of his necessities to enforce their own demands. After an interval of many years, he once more appeared publicly in the Diet at Prague, and to convince the people that he was really in existence, orders were given that all the windows should be opened in the streets through which he was to pass. Proof enough how far things had gone with him. The event justified his fears. The estates, conscious of their own power, refused to take a single step until their privileges were confirmed, and religious toleration fully assured to them. It was in vain to have recourse now to the old system of evasion. The emperor's fate was in their hands, and he must yield to necessity. At present, however, he only granted their other demands. Religious matters he reserved consideration at the next diet. The Bohemians now took up arms in defense of the emperor, and a bloody war between the two brothers was on the point of breaking out. But Rodolf, who feared nothing so much as remaining in this slavish dependency on the estates, waited not for a warlike issue, but hastened to effect a reconciliation with his brother by more peaceable means. By a formal act of abdication, he resigned to Matthias, what indeed he had no chance of wresting from him, Austria, and the kingdom of Hungary, and acknowledged him as a successor to the crown of Bohemia. Dearly enough had the emperor extricated himself from one difficulty, only to get immediately involved in another. The settlement of the religious affairs of Bohemia had been referred to the next Diet, which was to be held in 1609. The reformed Bohemians demanded the free exercise of their faith as under the former emperors. A constatory of their own, the cessation of the University of Prague and the right of electing defenders or protectors of liberty from their own body. The answer was the same as before, for the timid emperor was now entirely fettered by the unreformed party. However often, and in however threatening language the estates renewed their remonstrances, the emperor persisted in his first declaration of granting nothing beyond the old compact. The diet broke up without coming to a decision, and the estates, exasperated against the emperor, arranged a general meeting at Prague upon their own authority to right themselves. They appeared at Prague in great force. In defiance of the imperial prohibition, They carried on their deliberations almost under the very eyes of the Emperor. The yielding compliance which he began to show only proved how much they were feared and increased their audacity. Yet, on the main point, he remained inflexible. They fulfilled their threats and at last resolved to establish, by their own power, the free and universal exercise of their religion and to abandon the Emperor to his necessities until he should confirm this resolution. They went even farther, and elected for themselves the defenders, which the emperor had refused them. Ten were nominated by each of the three estates. They also determined to raise, as soon as possible, an armed force at the head of which Count Thurn, the chief organizer of the revolt, should be placed as general defender of the liberties of Bohemia. Their determination brought the emperor to submission, to which he was now counseled even by the Spaniards. Apprehensive lest the exasperated estates should throw themselves into the arms of the king of Hungary, he signed the memorable letter of majesty for Bohemia, by which, under the successors of the emperor, that people justified their rebellion. The Bohemian confession, which the states had laid before the emperor Maximilian, was, by the letter of majesty, placed on a footing of equality with the olden profession. The ultraquists, for by this title the Bohemian Protestants continued to designate themselves, were put in possession of the University of Prague, and allowed a consistory of their own, entirely independent of the archiepiscopal see of that city. All the churches in the cities, villages, and market-towns, which they held at the date of the letter, were secured to them, and, if in addition, they wished to erect others, it was permitted to the nobles and knights and the free cities to do so. This last cause in the letter of majesty gave rise to the unfortunate disputes which subsequently rekindled the flames of war in Europe. The letter of majesty erected the Protestant part of Bohemia into a kind of republic. The estates had learned to feel the power which they gained by perseverance, unity and harmony in their measures the emperor now retained little more than the shadow of his sovereign authority while by the new dignity of the so-called defenders of liberty a dangerous stimulus was given to the spirit of revolt the example and success of bohemia afforded a tempting seduction to the other hereditary dominions of austria and all attempted by similar means to extort similar privileges the spirit of liberty spread from one province to another and as it was chiefly the disunion among the Austrian princes that had enabled the Protestants so materially to improve their advantages, they now hastened to effect a reconciliation between the emperor and the king of Hungary. But the reconciliation could not be sincere. The wrong was too great to be forgiven, and Rodolf continued to nourish at heart an unextinguishable hatred of Matthias. With grief and indignation, he brooded over the thought, That the Bohemian sceptre was finally to descend into the hands of his enemy, and the prospect was not more consoling even if Matthias should die without issue. In that case, Ferdinand, Archduke of Graz, whom he equally disliked, was the head of the family. To exclude the latter as well as Matthias from the succession to the throne of Bohemia, he fell upon the project of diverting that inheritance to Ferdinand's brother the Archduke Leopold, Bishop of Passau, who among all his relatives had ever been the dearest and most deserving. The prejudices of the Bohemians in favor of the elective freedom of their crown and their attachment to Leopold's person seemed to favor this scheme, in which Rodolphe consulted rather his own partiality and vindictiveness than the good of his house. But to carry out this project a military force was requisite, and Rodolphe, actually assembled an army in the bishopric of Passau. The object of this force was hidden from all. An inroad, however, which, for want of pay, it made suddenly and without the emperor's knowledge into Bohemia, and the outrages which it there committed, stirred up the whole kingdom against him. In vain he asserted his innocence to the Bohemian estates; They would not believe his protestations. Vainly did he attempt to restrain the violence of his soldiery, They disregarded his orders, persuaded that the emperor's object was to annul the letter of Majesty. The protectors of liberty armed the whole of Protestant Bohemia, and invited Matthias into the country. After the dispersion of the force he had collected at Passau, the emperor remained helpless at Prague, where he was kept shut up like a prisoner in his palace, and separated from all his counsellors. In the meantime. Matthias entered Prague amidst universal rejoicings, where Rodolph was soon afterwards weak enough to acknowledge him king of Bohemia. So hard a fate befell this emperor, he was compelled during his life to abdicate in favor of his enemy that very throne of which he had been endeavoring to deprive him after his own death. To complete his degradation, he was obliged, by a personal act of renunciation, to release his subjects in Bohemia... Silesia, and Lusatia from their allegiance, and he did it with a broken heart. All, even those he thought he had most attached to his person, had abandoned him. When he had signed the instrument, he threw his hat upon the ground and gnawed the pin which had rendered so shameful a service. While Rodolph thus lost one hereditary dominion after another, the imperial dignity was not much better maintained by him each of the religious parties into which Germany was divided, continued its efforts to advance itself at the expense of the other, or to guard against its attacks. The weaker the hand that held the scepter, and the more the Protestants and Roman Catholics felt they were left to themselves, the more vigilant necessarily became their watchfulness, and the greater their distrust of each other. It was enough that the emperor was ruled by Jesuits, and was guided by Spanish councils, To excite the apprehension of the Protestants and to afford a pretext for hostility. The rash zeal of the Jesuits, which in the pulpit and by the press disputed the validity of the religious peace, increased this distrust, and caused their adversaries to see a dangerous design in the most indifferent measures of the Roman Catholics. Each step taken in the hereditary dominions of the Emperor for the repression of the Reformed religion was sure to draw the attention of all the Protestants of Germany, and this powerful support which the reformed subjects of Austria met, or expected to meet with, from their religious confederates in the rest of Germany, was no small cause of their confidence, and of the rapid success of Matthias. It was the general belief of the empire that they owed the long enjoyment of the religious peace merely to the difficulties in which the emperor was placed by the internal troubles in his dominions, and consequently, they were in no haste to relieve him from them. Almost all the affairs of the Diet were neglected, either through the procrastination of the Emperor, or through the fault of the Protestant estates, who had determined to make no provision for the common wants of the Empire till their own grievances were removed. These grievances related principally to the misgovernment of the Emperor, the violation of the religious treaty, and the presumptuous usurpations of the Aulic Council, which in the present reign had begun to extend its jurisdiction at the expense of the imperial chamber. Formerly, in all disputes between the estates, which could not be settled by club law, the emperors had in a last resort decided of themselves, if the case were trifling, and in conjunction with the princes, if it were important. Or they determined them by the advice of imperial judges who followed the court. This superior jurisdiction they had, in the end of the fifteenth century, assigned to a regular and permanent tribunal, the imperial chamber of spires, in which the estates of the empire, that they might not be oppressed by the arbitrary appointment of the emperor, had reserved themselves the right of electing the assessors, and of periodically reviewing its decrees. By the religious peace these rights of the estates, called the rights of presentation and visitation, were extended also to the Lutherans, so that Protestant judges had a voice in Protestant causes, and a seeming equality obtained for both religions in this supreme tribunal. But the enemies of the Reformation, and of the freedom of the estates, vigilant to take advantage of every incident that favored their views, soon found means to neutralize the beneficial effects of this institution. A supreme jurisdiction over the imperial states was gradually and skilfully usurped by a private imperial tribunal, the aulic Council in Vienna, a court at first intended merely to advise the emperor in the exercise of his undoubted imperial and personal prerogatives, a court whose members being appointed and paid by him had no law but the interest of their master, and no standard of equity but the advancement of the unreformed religion of which they were partisans. Before the aulic Council were now brought several suits originating between estates differing in religion, and which therefore properly belonged to the imperial chamber. It was not surprising if the decrees of this tribunal bore traces of their origin, if the interests of the Roman Church and of the Emperor were preferred to justice by Roman Catholic judges and the creatures of the Emperor. Although all the estates of Germany seemed to have equal cause for resisting so perilous an abuse, the Protestants alone, who most sensibly felt it, and even these not all at once, and in a body, came forward as the defenders of German liberty, which the establishment of so arbitrary a tribunal had outraged in its most sacred point, the administration of justice. In fact, Germany would have had little cause to congratulate itself upon the abolition of club law and in the institution of imperial chamber if an arbitrary tribunal of the emperor was allowed to interfere with the latter the estates of the german empire would indeed have improved little upon the days of barbarism if the chamber of justice in which they sat along with the emperor's judges and for which they had abandoned their original princely prerogative should cease to be a court of last resort but the strangest contradictions were at this date to be found in the minds of men the name of emperor a remnant of roman despotism was still associated with an idea of autocracy which though it formed a ridiculous inconsistency with the privileges of the estates was nevertheless argued for by jurists diffused by the partisans of despotism and believed by the ignorant to these general grievances was gradually added a chain of singular incidents which at length converted the anxiety of the protestants into utter distrust during the Spanish persecutions in the Netherlands, several Protestant families had taken refuge in Ouse-la-Chapelle, an imperial city, and attached to the Roman Catholic faith, where they settled and insensibly extended their adherence. Having succeeded by stratagem in introducing some of their members into the municipal council, they demanded a church and the public exercise of their worship, and the demand being unfavorably received. They succeeded by violence in enforcing it, and also in usurping the entire government of the city. To see so important a city in Protestant hands was too heavy a blow for the Emperor and the Roman Catholics. After all the Emperor's requests and commands for the restoration of the olden government had proved ineffectual, the Aulic Council proclaimed the city under the ban of the Empire, which, however, was not put in force till the following reign. Of yet greater importance were two other attempts of the Protestants to extend their influence and their power. The Elector Gebhard of Cologne, born Trucesa, Footnote, Grandmaster of the Kitchen, end Footnote. Born Truchessa of Waldburg, conceived for the young Countess Agnes of Mansfield, Canoness of Gerensheim, a passion which was not unreturned. As the eyes of all Germany were directed to this intercourse, the brothers of the Countess, two zealous Calvinists, demanded satisfaction for the injured honor of their house, which, as long as the Elector remained a Roman Catholic prelate, could not be repaired by marriage. They threatened the Elector they would wash out this stain in his blood and their sisters, unless he either abandoned all further connection with the Countess, or consented to re-establish her reputation at the altar the Elector, indifferent to all the consequences of this step, listened to nothing but the voice of love. Whether it was in consequence of his previous inclination to the Reformed doctrines, or that the charms of his mistress alone effected this wonder, he renounced the Roman Catholic faith and led the beautiful Agnes to the altar. This event was of the greatest importance. By the letter of the clause reserving the ecclesiastical states from the general operation of the religious peace, the elector had, by his apostasy, forfeited all rights to the temporalities of his bishopric, and if in any case it was important for the Catholics to enforce the clause, it was so especially in the case of electorates. On the other hand, the relinquishment of so high a dignity was a severe sacrifice, and peculiarly so in the case of a tender husband who had wished to enhance the value of his heart and hand by the gift of a principality. Moreover, the Reservatum Ecclesiasticum was a disputed article of the Treaty of Augsburg, and all the German Protestants were aware of the extreme importance of wresting their fourth electorate from the opponents of their faith. Footnote. Saxony, Brandenburg, and the Palatinate were already Protestant. End footnote. The example had already been set in several of the ecclesiastical benefices of lower Germany, and attended with success. Several canons of Cologne had also already embraced the Protestant confession, and were on the elector's side, while in the city itself he could depend upon the support of a numerous Protestant party. All these considerations, greatly strengthened by the persuasions of his friends and relations, and the promises of several German courts, determined the elector to retain his dominions, while he changed his religion. But it was soon apparent that he had entered upon a contest which he could not carry through. Even the free toleration of the Protestant service within the territories of Cologne had already occasioned a violent opposition on the part of the canons and Roman Catholic estates of that province. The intervention of the emperor and a papal ban from Rome which anathematized the elector as an apostate, and deprived him of all his dignities, temporal and spiritual, armed his own subjects and chapter against him. The elector assembled a military force, the chapter did the same. To ensure also the aid of a strong arm, they proceeded forthwith to a new election, and chose the bishop of Liege, a province of Bavaria. A civil war now commenced, which, from the strong interest which both religious parties in Germany necessarily felt in the conjecture, was likely to terminate in a general breaking up of the religious peace. What most made the Protestants indignant was that the Pope should have presumed, by a pretended apostolic power, to deprive a prince of the empire of his imperial dignities. Even in the golden days of their spiritual domination, this prerogative of the Pope had been disputed how much more likely it was to be questioned at a period when his authority was entirely disowned by one party, while even with the other it rested on its hottering foundation. All the Protestant princes took up the affair warmly against the Emperor, and Henry IV of France, then King of Navarre, left no means of negotiation untried to urge the German princes to the vigorous assertion of their rights. The issue would decide for ever, the liberties of germany four protestant against three roman catholic voices in the electoral college must at once have given the preponderance to the former and forever excluded the house of austria from the imperial throne but the elector Gebhardt had embraced the calvinist not the lutheran religion and this circumstance alone was his ruin the mutual rancor of these two churches would not permit the lutheran estates to regard the elector as one of their party and as such to lend him their effectual support all indeed had encouraged and promised him assistance but only one appanaged prince of the palatine house the palsgrave john casimir a zealous calvinist kept his word despite of the imperial prohibition he hastened with his little army into the territories of cologne but without being able to effect anything because the elector who was destitute even of the first necessities left him totally without help. So much the more rapid was the progress of the newly chosen Elector, whom his Bavarian relations and the Spaniards from the Netherlands supported with the utmost vigour. The troops of Gebhard, left by their master without pay, abandoned one place after another to the enemy, by whom others were compelled to surrender. In his Westphalian territories, Gebhard held out for some time longer, till here, too, he was at last obliged to yield to superior force. After several vain attempts in Holland and England to obtain means for his restoration, he retired into the chapter of Strasbourg and died dean of that cathedral, the first sacrifice to the ecclesiastical reservation, or rather to the want of harmony among the German Protestants. To this dispute in Cologne was soon added another in Strasbourg. Several Protestant canons of Cologne who had been included in the same papal ban with the elector, had taken refuge within this bishopric, where they likewise held prebends. As the Roman Catholic canons of Strasbourg hesitated to allow them, as being under the ban, the enjoyment of their prebends, they took violent possession of the benefices, and the support of a powerful Protestant party among the citizens soon gave them the preponderance in the chapter. The other canons thereupon retired to Alsace-Severne, where under the protection of the bishop they established themselves as the only lawful chapter and denounced that which remained in strasbourg as illegal the latter in the meantime had so strengthened themselves by the reception of several protestant colleagues of high rank that they could venture upon the death of the bishop to nominate a new protestant bishop in the person of john george of brandenburg the roman catholic canons far from allowing this election nominated the bishop of metz a prince of lorraine to that dignity who announced his promotion by immediately commencing hostilities against the territories of strasburg that city now took up arms in defence of its protestant chapter and the prince of brandenburg while the other party with the assistance of the troops of lorraine endeavoured to possess themselves of the temporalities of the chapter a tedious war was the consequence which according to the spirit of the times was attended with barbarous devastations. In vain did the emperor interpose with his supreme authority to terminate the dispute. The ecclesiastical property remained for a long time divided between the two parties, till at last the Protestant prince, for a moderate pecuniary equivalent, renounced his claims, and thus in this dispute also, the Roman church came off victorious. An occurrence which, soon after the adjustment of this dispute, took place in Denauworth, a free city of Swabia, was still more critical for the whole of Protestant Germany. In this once Roman Catholic city, the Protestants, during the reigns of Ferdinand and his son, had in the usual way become so completely predominant that the Roman Catholics were obliged to content themselves with a church in the monastery of the Holy Cross, and for fear of offending the Protestants, were even forced to suppress the greater part of their religious rites at length the fanatical abbot of this monastery ventured to defy the popular prejudices and to arrange a public procession preceded by the cross and banners flying but he was soon compelled to desist from the attempt when a year afterwards encouraged by a favourable imperial proclamation the same abbot attempted to renew this procession the citizens proceeded to open violence the inhabitants shut the gate against the monks on their return trampled their colors underfoot, and followed them home with clamor and abuse. An imperial citation was the consequence of this act of violence, and as the exasperated populace even threatened to assault the imperial commissaries, and all attempts at an amicable adjustment were frustrated by the fanaticism of the multitude, the city was at last formally placed under the ban of the empire, the execution of which was entrusted to Maximilian, Duke of Bavaria. The citizens, formerly so insolent, were seized with terror at the approach of the Bavarian army. Pusillanimity now possessed them, though once so full of defiance, and they laid down their arms without striking a blow. The total abolition of the Protestant religion within the walls of the city was the punishment of their rebellion. It was deprived of its privileges, and, from a free city of Swabia, converted into a municipal town of Bavaria. Two circumstances connected with the proceeding must have strongly excited the attention of the Protestants, even if the interests of religion had been less powerful on their minds. First of all, the sentence had been pronounced by the aulic Council, an arbitrary and exclusively Roman Catholic tribunal, whose jurisdiction besides had been so warmly disputed by them, and secondly, its execution had been entrusted to the Duke of Bavaria, the head of another circle. These unconstitutional steps seem to be the harbinger of further violent measures on the Roman Catholic side, the result probably of secret conferences and dangerous designs, which might perhaps end in the entire subversion of their religious liberty. In circumstances where the law of force prevails, and security depends upon power alone, the weakest party is naturally the most busy to place itself in a posture of defense. This was now the case in Germany. If the Roman Catholics really meditated any evil against the Protestants in Germany, the probability was that the blow would fall on the south rather than the north, because in lower Germany the Protestants were connected together through a long unbroken tract of country, and could therefore easily combine for their mutual support. While those in the south, detached from each other and surrounded on all sides by Roman Catholic states, were exposed to every inroad. If, moreover, as was to be expected, the Catholics availed themselves of the divisions amongst the Protestants and leveled their attack against one of the religious parties, it was the Calvinists who, as the weakest, and as being besides excluded from the religious treaty, were apparently in the greatest danger, and upon them would probably fall the first attack. Both these circumstances took place in the dominions of the Elector palatine, which possessed, in the Duke of Bavaria, a formidable neighbor, and which, by reason of their defection to Calvinism, received no protection from the religious peace, and had little hope of succor from the Lutheran states. No country in Germany had experienced so many revolutions in religion in so short a time as in the Palatinate. In the space of sixty years, this country, an unfortunate toy in the hands of its rulers, had twice adopted the doctrines of Luther, and twice relinquished them for Calvinism. The elector Frederick Third first abandoned the Confession of Augsburg, which his eldest son and successor Louis immediately re-established. The Calvinists throughout the whole country were deprived of their churches, their preachers, and even their teachers banished beyond the frontiers. While the prince in his Lutheran zeal, persecuted them even in his will, by appointing none but strict and orthodox Lutherans as the guardians of his son, a minor. But this illegal testament was disregarded by his brother, the Count Palantine, John Casimir, who, by the regulations of the Golden Bull, assumed the guardianship and administration of the state. Calvinist teachers were given to the elector Frederick IV, then only nine years of age, who were ordered if necessary to drive the Lutheran heresy out of the soul of their pupil with blows. If such was the treatment of the sovereign, that of the subjects may be easily conceived. It was under this Frederick that the Palatine court exerted itself so vigorously to unite the Protestant states of Germany to joint measures against the House of Austria, and if possible, bring about the formation of a general confederacy. Besides that, this court had always been guided by the councils of France, with whom hatred of the House of Austria was the ruling principle. A regard for his own safety urged him to secure in time the doubtful assistance of the Lutherans against a near and overwhelming enemy. Great difficulties, however, opposed this union, because the Lutherans' dislike of the Reformed was scarcely less than the common aversion of both to the Romanists an attempt was first made to reconcile the two professions, in order to facilitate a political union, but all these attempts failed, and generally ended on both parties adhering the more strongly to their respective opinions. Nothing then remained but to increase the fear and the distrust of the evangelicals, and in this way to impress upon them the necessity of this alliance. The power of the Roman Catholics, and the magnitude of the danger were exaggerated, Accidental incidents were ascribed to deliberate plans, innocent actions misrepresented by invidious constructions, and the whole conduct of the professors of the olden religion was interpreted as a result of a well-weighed and systematic plan, which, in all probability, they were very far from having concerted. End of Part 3 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com